You're listening to a podcast from GUT. Welcome to the GUT podcast. I'm Mary McLean, Senior Lecturer and Consultant in Gastroenterology at Aberdeen University in Scotland, UK, and current Visiting Academic Fellow at the Frederick National Laboratory of Cancer Research in the USA. In my role as Education Editor for GUT, I'm hosting this podcast today. This month, I'm discussing the Editor's Choice manuscript from the June issue of GUT, presented by Dr. Suji Ogino's group and collaborators, entitled Assessment of Colorectal Cancer Molecular Features Along Bowel Subset Challenges the Conception of Distinct Dichotomy of Proximal versus Distal Colorectum. This work was conducted within the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Harvard Medical School, Boston, USA, and is also central to an accompanying leading article in the same issue of GUT. I'm delighted to welcome the senior author of this paper, Dr. Suji Ogano, here today to discuss this paper. His research interests focus on the molecular pathological epidemiology of colorectal cancers and polyps, linking molecular changes in cancer cells to clinical tumour behaviour and potentially modifiable lifestyle factors, and he has published extensively in this field. Welcome today. Well, first I'd like to begin by exploring the background to this paper. Traditionally, as the title of your paper suggests, the colorectum has been split into a dichotomy of proximal and distal sites based on a division point at the splenic flexure. Can you give us a brief overview of how this evolved and the reasoning and the evidence behind this traditionally accepted approach? Oh, well, this is explained in our accompanying gut-leading article. Uh, basically, briefly, in 1990, there was an influential review by J.A. Buffell, which proposed a distinct dichotomy of proximal versus distal colorectal cancers in terms of genetics and phenotypes. And then likely uh, differences in surgeries as well as screening, especially in the era of sigmoidoscopy, also contributed to this uh, dichotomy idea. And then many, many subsequent studies appear to confirm this dichotomy concept. But importantly, no study could refute this um, idea as long as the dichotomy design was used. And, and then subsequently, uh, authoritative reviews over the past two decades have propagated this dogma, I, I would say dogma, to the entire research and clinical community. Your hypothesis central to this current paper aimed to challenge this concept or dogma. Can you discuss your hypothesis and how this year was, idea was conceived? Yes. Um, the colorectum is the, the organ with the richest microbial community. It has been well known for you know, many years. And the luminal contents contain carcinogens and can elicit inflammation, inflammatory reactions. And we now know the gut contents, as well as those inflammatory reactions and also carcinogens, play a major role in carcinogenesis. And, and gut luminal contents, and then, you know, we think gut luminal contents do not change abruptly at splenic fracture. Uh, it rather change uh, continuously. So uh, considering the role of gut contents and microbiota in carcinogenesis, and uh, a distinct dichotomy of proximal versus distal colon or colorectum did not make sense to me. That's why we conceived this uh, continuum hypothesis. 
Well, your study includes assessment of a large number of patients from two substantial and well-known US databases. Can you tell us about this and how you identified your study participants? Yes, I mean, our database is quite unique in uh, several aspects. The, the major points I will emphasize. First, uh, it represents a longitudinal follow-up study of a database, uh, sorry, a baseline population of 170,000 people who have been living across the U.S. Thus, this study reflects what is going on in our general population. And uh, health professionals were chosen in this study because, you know, the health professionals uh, can increase follow-up rates and the accuracy of questionnaire data and then disease record. And all participants have been very proud to be a part of this important health study. And second, we have accumulated large amounts of diet and lifestyle data so that we may discover carcinogenic factors in our daily lives. And third, uh, we have collected tissue specimens to do pathological and molecular sub-studies. And this enables us to study heterogeneity of one disease, uh, such as colon cancer or, or any other disease. You know, we go into deeply into disease and, and subclassify because disease is heterogeneous, as, as we will explain this later. Uh, I would like to deeply thank all U.S. pathology laboratories for their uh, your generous cooperation and support for our study. And fourth, we are able to build up a high-dimensional database, which provides us a very unique ability to address many interesting questions which no one else can answer. And this novel interdisciplinary field was recently established by myself as molecular pathological epidemiology, now we call MPE. This is, has been reviewed in also GUT in 2011. Once you identified your participants, you performed molecular analysis, as you said, on paraffin-embedded tissue specimens of their colorectal cancers and also assessed several lifestyle factors. But firstly, can you tell us about the molecular changes you looked for and why these were particularly targeted? Uh, that, that's an important question. We analyzed the well-known driver events of uh, colorectal cancer. The you know, first thing is uh, microsatellite instability, we call MSI, and KRAS, BRAF, and PIX3C mutations. And the, uh, the CPG and phenotype, we call SIMP, which can be a driver for extensive tumor suppressor gene silencing by epigenetic mechanisms. So we also analyzed hypomethylation in line one, uh, long interspersed nucleotide element one, uh, repetitive elements. So the line one hypomethylation strongly correlates with uh, patient mortality shown by uh, our, our GenCI 2008 paper and other groups too. And these biomarkers are chosen because of their established importance in carcinogenesis genesis as well as high clinical and epidemiologic relevance. Thank you for letting us know about the molecular changes, but can you just take a minute to remind us um, of the function of those particular genes and uh, where they stand in normal homeostasis and disease? 
Right. Yes. I mean, those are the well-known oncogenes, and uh, you know, like growth factors uh, bind to the receptor and activate uh, signaling pathway. And these uh, genes and products are important uh, downstream, mediating those growth uh, signaling. And in particular, KRAS and BRAF, you know, the BRAF constitute the MAP kinase pathway. PI3K constitute to AKT pathway, and the KRAS is on top of those pathways. And it has been well known that many human cancers harbor these, I mean, all these mutations or you know, either mutations. And this is a well-known driver oncogenic events. Okay, what information did you collect about the epidemiological analysis of lifestyle factors and what was the outcome of this? Were there any new associations identified? Yes, uh, we have uh, prospectively accumulated diet data, lifestyle habits, such as smoking, alcohol, coffee, tea drinking, physical activity, aspirin, hormone use, sleep duration, and many other I mean, you can pretty much imagine anything in the lifestyle, you know. The, our unique uh, molecular pathological epidemiology, MP studies, have enabled unparalleled discoveries of links of those uh, lifestyle factors to molecular events in tumor cells. For example, uh, we have extensively published, uh, just a few examples include uh, aspirin use and the PTGS2 cyclooxygenase to expression, in New England Journal of Medicine 2007, a body mass index and uh, CTNNB1, beta cutting expression in JAMA 2011, and the folate and alcohol intakes and line 1 hypomethylation in GUT 2010, which was also podcasted. There are clearly many benefits of your approach in using such a robust study population. Can you take us through these and also comment on any limitations you encountered? Yes, the first, uh, uh, the first, um, as I mentioned, it is well representative of U.S. Caucasian population. It is very different from a convenient sample, which means cases collected in one to several academic hospitals. A sample based on these academic hospitals is subject to many unknown sources of selection bias, which can uh, limit the study and can give spurious findings. A second, our sample size uh, in our current study, over 1,400 cases, is quite larger than the tumor molecular database, which enables robust statistical analysis and increases generalizability of our findings. There are many studies with much bigger sample sizes, but with no data on tumor molecular features. On the other hand, there are plenty of studies with tumor molecular data, but most of those are quite small, typically something like 200 or 300 cases and not population-based, which means a convenient sample based on one to a few hospitals. So you can easily imagine that with only 300 cases, we could not have produced robust data on nine different subsites of colorectum as we did in in this study. Uh, this underscores the need of uh, changing our thinking of rational study design. Large sample sizes are necessary to conduct good studies. Third, 
patient outcome is also monitored using repeated questionnaires, medical record review, and national death index. And the fourth, our tumor molecular analysis methods are quite robust. All assays are carefully validated, and I'm a practicing molecular pathologist and very meticulous in assay design validation for clinical use. And I take the same approach in my research. Thus, our molecular pathological epidemiology, MP database, is quite unique in a number of ways. Uh, one major challenge is that we could not obtain tissue uh, specimens for all cases. We have about 60 or 70 percent uh, case retrieval rates, um, you know, which is good but not ideal. And we confirm that we did not have a, a substantial selection bias. Uh, um, and then so, oh, so, so we really appreciate uh, cooperation of pathology laboratories across the U.S. for providing us with tumor tissue. I, I'd like to thank again. Well, moving on to the results, can you describe the main findings of your study? Well, I highlight the data on MSI, SIMP, and BRAF in this podcast. So we examine the proportion of tumors with uh, MSI, microsatellite instability, CPGNA method phenotype, SIMP high, and BRAF mutation in each subsite along the entire colorectum, from rectum, rectsigmoid, sigmoid, descending colon, splenic flexure, transverse colon, hepatic flexure, ascending colon, lastly, cecum. What we found was striking. The proportions of MSI high, SIMP high, and BRAF mutation increased continuously from rectum, uh, which shows about 1% to 2% of these changes, uh, all way to ascending colon, and then uh, which shows about 40% of tumors show these changes. And then we tested linearity and nonlinearity by multivariate regression models adjusting for potential confounders. Uh, an increase in these molecular features was very linear, and there was no evidence for nonlinearity. And then PIX3CA mutation data also very similar. And these findings clearly support the colorectal continuum hypothesis and refute the dogma of the distinct dichotomy of proximal versus distal colorectum. The cecum demonstrated a unique molecular signature. Can you hypothesize why this might be the case? We found that the cecal cancers show a high frequency of keras mutation, 52%, than other sites, around 30%. And this is a substantial difference with very high statistical significance. And I know these data have already been replicated by one large Japanese study. In addition, CECAM does not follow the continuum uh, from uh, rectum to ascending colon in terms of MSI SIMP and BRF mutation. So uh, we, think, uh, we need to think about this. And CECAM is a unique place. In mouse, CECAM is said to be a major structure of intestine. In humans, it's small, but the, it's the only place of colorectum where the normal structure takes the shape of pouch. So the gut contents stay there in the pouch. And immunologically, and cecum is a special functional organ. And the surface area, 
the incidence rate of cancer is probably highest in cecum and rectum. And both cecum and rectum are located at the bottom of colorectum. And probably content and gravity uh, matter a lot in carcinogenesis. And why is keras mutation so common in cecal cancer? We need more studies to answer this question. Well, overall, what are the implications of your findings on future research of colorectal carcinogenesis? Uh, I think we, our study has uh, earth-shattering impact, I must say, uh, by creating the new colorectal continuum paradigm. Our data clearly uh, refutes the long-standing dogma of proximal versus distal colorectum. We need a paradigm shift away from this dogma. The biggest implication, I think, is that uh, we need to consider heterogeneity between subsites and record the tumor location as precisely as possible for research studies. A true continuum design is ideal, but practically very difficult, so we propose a multi-segmental design, just as we did in our study. We clearly need to have a much bigger sample size for any given study to address heterogeneity of subsites. For example, a collection of 300 cases won't work. We need more cooperation and collaboration to make a study sample size as large as possible. Do you think your findings could potentially have an impact on the clinical management of patients with colorectal cancer? Yes, definitely. Uh, for not only colorectal cancer patients, but also all individuals at the risk of developing cancer, which means everyone. So as, a, as one example, uh, serrated lesions such as sessile serrated polyps adenomas, we call SSP, SSA, are precursors for sympathy, beaver-mutated cancers, especially in proximal cancer. Thus, experts recommend a particularly close follow-up if SSP, SSA is located in proximal colon. However, it may be possible that the risk of developing cancer changes continuously along the bowel subsite, given our study finding. Then a risk assessment need to take into account the continuum paradigm. It is also possible that cecal polyps may have a different clinical implication from ascending colon polyps. For cancer patients, treatment response likely depends on detailed subsite location because of the biological heterogeneity between subsites and tumor features, gut content, local immune response differ by subsite. So we need more studies and data to refine clinical management for individuals to achieve personalized medicine. Again, we need more collaboration, cooperation to conduct big studies. Lastly, you've identified a changing molecular signature associated with colorectal cancer along the length of the colorectum, and you've taken us through that today. But in your opinion, what could be the etiology of this genotoxicity, and what can we do to prevent it? That, that's a big question. And colorectal cancer represents complex multifactorial diseases with inherent biological and etiological heterogeneity as I discussed in my uh, comprehensive review in GUT 2011, and diet, lifestyle factor, gut content, microbiota, carcinogens, host response, inflammation, 
all play roles in carcinogenesis and contribute to colorectal cancer continuum. To prevent colorectal cancer right now, we can recommend healthy diet rich in vegetables and calcium, physical activity to, and, uh, to get the vitamin D, modest sun exposure, and avoidance of alcohol, obesity, smoking, and excess red meat intake. And with our high-dimensional molecular pathological epidemiology database, we aim to understand why some risk factors cause colorectal cancers and why some factors prevent cancer. We need to study heterogeneity of detailed colorectal subsites, and we need more collaboration and cooperation to answer a number of questions. Thus, I truly appreciate all pathology laboratories across the U.S. for their cooperation for providing tumor tissue to us. Without your help, this study and many of our groundbreaking discoveries would not have been possible. Thank you very much. Well, this takes us to the end of the podcast. I'd like to thank Dr. Aguino for joining me today for this discussion. Um, Thank you very much. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.